Hey, this is Dave Burgess, and you are listening to The Dave Burgess Show, where we talk education, lifestyle, entrepreneurship, fitness, wellness, principles of success, interview elite performers in their field, and most importantly, cover topics that will empower, inspire, and uplift you. Let's go. Hey, welcome to episode 50. I can't believe I'm saying that. Episode 50 of the Dave Burgess Show. And I have a special guest with me today. And that is Joshua Stamper. Joshua is the training and development specialist for the Teach Better team. He is the podcast network manager for the Teach Better team. He is an educational speaker. He is a trainer in trauma-informed practices. He is the host of the incredible Aspire to Lead podcast. As I am recording this, 263 episodes. I'm like all proud of my 50 over here. This guy's got 263 <laughs> episodes out there. Um, he is husband. He is a father of six. He is the author of Aspire to Lead from Edumass. Shout out to Sarah Thomas, who I love. And uh, I am just honored to have you on the show. Welcome, Joshua. Oh my goodness. It is a true honor, Dave. I love your podcast. I was just checking out your last episode with and Nick, she's phenomenal. I had her on my podcast too. Shout out to your show and 50 episodes. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a long journey to that 50. I've had some starts and stops along the way. So I, I'm uh, so learning some lessons in consistency, right? And so trying trying to get better at that. Um, and thank you so much for having a Nick and so many of um, you know DBC family like on the show. Uh, it's something that we really appreciate. Yeah, I love having your authors in, I mean, DBC in general, you guys find just phenomenal folks in education. So any way I can amplify them is an honor for, for myself and, you know, for my audience. Well, we're certainly honored whenever we have one of um, the authors on the show. Hey, so I want to talk to you about something, Joshua, and that is that you are the winner of the <laughs> DBC PirateCon logo, t-shirt logo contest. Yes. And got, I think you won a free registration to this incredible conference, which, uh, well, that, that, that victory and that prize didn't turn out so well for you though. <laughs> well, it was fun. I, so if folks don't know, I was a graphic designer prior to being a teacher and administrator. So I still dabble to this day in it. And honestly, my podcast uh, is kind of my outlet for my graphic design love. And so when I saw that on Twitter, I guess it was Twitter at the time, not X, and uh, saw that you guys were having a competition. I rushed over to my computer and, and put something together. And um, yeah, it was so fun to see that I won. I wasn't expecting that. But yeah, all all of my hopes was to go out to California and join the DVC crew. And and man, the, the list of people that were going to be there and the events and stuff. But as you know, things kind of Took a Pandem- the, the pandemic had other plans. <laughs> yeah, yes, so did. DBC Parkon <laughs> was canceled, did not return. Um, but so my question though is this: as a former graphic designer, as a former art teacher, um, I don't know, like, was it fair for you to enter this contest? Like, aren't you kind of like, weren't you kind of like a <laughs> ringer? A ringer? Isn't this a little bit like Taylor Swift coming to like America's Got t- Talent or something like that? I don't, I don't remember any like qualifications or like requirements with the things so I, I figured, you know, like, I'll jump into the the contest and give it my try. I, there were some, actually, I don't know if you remember Dave, but there were some pretty strong submissions. So there that's why I was surprised that I won. Yeah. yeah. There were some so great uh, entries. I was kind of feeling like this was like sending the dream team to the Olympics back in the day of the basketball. It's like, I don't, I don't know how fair this was, but <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> congratulations on your victory. Um, Thank you. Hey, that brings me to a question, though. As a former art teacher, one of the things that you wrote about in your book was that you sensed there was maybe a little bit of a stigma towards mm-hmm. you as a, an elective teacher um, when you started to want to move into leadership positions and admin and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I was wondering what your thoughts were about that and what maybe what were some of the things that you did to try to overcome that? Yeah, great question, Dave. So I actually had people straight up tell me that, like, you know, that I didn't know how to teach or, you know, they would they would do kind of like a backwards compliment about the art classroom. And even like higher up district folks would ask, like, how I was going to prove that I knew how to provide feedback to other instructors in a building if I was to get into an ambient position. And so it was very clear 
from my peers, from my admin, and even district leaders that I was going to have to prove that I wasn't just the quote unquote elective art teacher. And so, I mean, if, if anyone has entered a classroom of the arts, it's, it's not just a free for all. It's not just an easy a, uh, there is instruction that goes on there. And I was very proud of what was going on in the classroom. And I really wish that folks had an sh- opportunity to go and see what was happening in my classroom, as far as like the collaboration and the creativity that was occurring, but then also the the strategies that I was using to try and pull that out of my students. And so, yeah, I, what I did with my admin staff was I sat down with them and I said, look, I need opportunities to prove that I'm in classrooms, but not only that, but I'm also giving feedback to my peers, which is an odd position to be in. <laughs> Let's be honest. You know, if I, I was young at the time, I looked like a baby and I went from new to a campus, new to the profession to a couple years in now striving to become an administrator. And when they see you with those other folks, you just get the perception of being a, being a part of the bag bad team, right? The dark side. I got a lot of comments about the, being the golden boy and all these other things. And so I knew if I was going to give feedback that it had to be in a way that wasn't going to be threatening to them, but then also not have pushback as far as like me being perceived as something beyond the position that I was currently in. So what I did was I found the system that they had uh, for feedback, which was like a three minute quick walkthrough. And there was a program on a device. I asked to go to that training. Um, I got approved by the district and my admin staff. I got to go to that. And then I just asked like, what was the quota for my, my administrative staff? They had to have 250 walkthroughs, these quick walkthroughs um, put into the system by the end of the school year. So I was like, I know I'm just a teacher, but I'm going to match and do the same as any other administrator because I wanted to prove that I could get into a classroom and provide the feedback that the district wanted, but also I wanted to be seen at the district level as someone that was an administrator, not just an art teacher, not just an elected teacher. So that's what I did on my off period. Um, I would take specific days that I could and I grab the device and I just get into classrooms and the the feedback was not about what the teacher was doing. It was about what the students were doing. So it was a great way to, you know, provide the staff as a whole, the data, but it also showed the upper admin that I knew what I was doing as far as instruction. And I was giving correct information and then also that I was able to disseminate that to the staff. So that was something that I did. I know that's not available to everybody, but you know, I was trying to make sure that I had data to show that I was getting out of my classroom and experiencing instruction at all forms. Yeah, and so there's several things that this brings up for me. One of them is, first of all, it's unfortunate that you would have to prove this and have to overcome this like stigma of being an elective teacher and being an art teacher. I see the same thing happen with... Uh, like I know some absolutely incredible PE teachers, right? Yeah. Physical education teachers that do unbelievable work with students, but it's like, oh, PE teachers roll the balls out and play. And it's like, that's, you know, maybe a lot of these people haven't been in a PE class for a long time because there's a lot of stuff that's going on. And same thing in music programs and all like, like some of the, the, the teachers that are best at connecting with kids often yeah. are in some of these elective classes. And, you know, one of the questions I always ask in the, my keynote is like, if they didn't have to be there, would you be teaching to an empty room? Right. And I've had elective teachers come up to me afterwards and say, you know, actually for the, for these other teachers, that's not a real question for them because the kids have to take their classes for me. That's a real question. I have to, and I have to have kids who want to take my class or I lose my position because my class is an elective. Yeah, there was some weird dynamics too, because you have, you understand like your position exists because kids sign up for your class. So there's yeah. like this element of like not only teaching, but then also advertising your course to say, hey, be a part of this environment so that I have people in the seats and that I can justify my job. And, you know, certain states, they're cutting the arts left and right. So it's yeah. really a lot of pressure on the elective teachers to make sure that, that kids see value in what they're providing. And then you're also trying to like, you know, have a little show here of like why you should take my class and why it's going to be beneficial for them. So there's a there's a couple of different pressures there on elective teachers that don't exist for some of the cores, like you said, they because the kids have to to take their courses. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the other thing I love about what you said was that um, so despite this stigma, 
you recognized it and you know you can complain about all you want but you realized there was it was a reality that you were living in at that moment and so you did something proactive to try to move past that and I, that's something that's kind of a theme throughout the book is that you, know, you hit these obstacles and run into these things and um and that going back to that elective idea that was something I know that was maybe that drew you to school too. You mentioned that like school was not really a successful place for you, certainly in the early years. And that the things like an art class and athletics, the ability you said that was you wanted to create and you wanted to compete. And those were the two things that drew you to school. And that's what draws a lot of our kids to school. That's why it's so important to keep these art programs, to keep these sports and athletics programs in schools. Cause that's what, that's what the, the first connection to school is for a lot of kids. Yeah, I didn't really see a whole lot of value in school growing up. I knew a lot of what I was taking that was required of me due to the state was something that was just jumping through hoops and I wasn't going to use it later in life. I just, I I knew that to my core and uh, I pushed back on a lot of stuff and I did it respectfully. Don't don't get me wrong. But at the same point, like no one could give me a good reason. My parents, my teachers, my counselors, like no one could give me a good idea as to like why I was sitting in this class taking this, this and memorizing information that I was never going to use as an adult. And so, uh, so much you, Dave, like I'm a very active person, like sitting in a chair all day is just torture. And so, yeah. you know, that's, that's why I took as many PE courses as possible is because it gave me an outlet. And then I did sports after school. And so it was just a constant movement of that. Plus the art classroom gave me the opportunity where no one was telling me what to do. I could do whatever I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And it was just about the portfolio and getting things done on my time. And, and right. that's one thing for me is like, and not to get like too deep, but like, I didn't have a lot of control at home. So I wanted to find opportunities to find control in my life. And so, you know, when people told me I had to do something, I always pushed back. I always yeah. pushed back because I wanted to have control uh, on where I was going to go. And my, my favorite teacher of all time, Miss Lurch, she was my art teacher. She's the one that believed in me. And she's the one that like pushed me and, and cared about what was going on in my life. Most teachers never asked how I was doing. No, no teachers outside of Miss Lurch asked like about my family or about my activities or about my interests. And so like she had this, this connection, this deep connection um, that that built trust with me where I started to believe maybe I could do something beyond high school. I never had yeah. aspirations to go to college. I never thought about the jobs I was going to do. I was just kind of grinding out, <laughs> going to school every day. And, and like I said in the book, yeah, I only went to school for electives because I didn't see value in anything else. And so, yeah, I think we just need to be, as educators, understanding that there's a lot of kids that have very little motivation to go to school every day. And there might be something, a connection that's made that goes outside of just the core classes that they have to take. Yeah. Uh, the other part, you know, you you not only had the elective thing going on um as a teacher, but you also had the the coach stigma. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's the thing too. And I'm I'm a former coach, right? And so I know that coach. And like I know I mean that's one person I won't name right now that I'm thinking of right now that on Twitter is very commonly mocks anyone who is a coach and a teacher and you know makes it seem as if that automatically means that they're not serious about their um their teaching, which yeah. again is ridiculous. And uh, good coaching requires incredible teaching. And so, and one of the things that I always, sometimes people will say something, well, you, they're just a coach at school. Like just, just go, Hey, listen, like you, you classroom teacher, you complain about test score, emphasis or over emphasis on test scores and all that kind of stuff like that. Well, listen, a coaches, kids, a coaches students, they take their test in public with bleachers full of people. <laughs> watching, and, yeah. and by the way, that's you don't like how uh, you don't like the being judged by your test scores. Like the coaches' scores are in the paper the next morning, <laughs> and, then, and their job may be dependent upon those scores too. And so, like it's the idea that um, teachers of elective subjects and coaches and all that are not like true educators. It's just always been such a ridiculous notion to me. Well, honestly, the coaching component was why I got an administration. It wasn't because of being an elective teacher. Although I think I was doing a great job in that in that role, it was the coaching and how they saw I was making an impact beyond my classroom. I was making an impact campus wide because I had my hands on hundreds of kids now 
in addition to what I was doing in the classroom. So, you know, I was getting to work with teachers about, you know, helping the students with whatever course or, you know, I hate to say it, but in Texas, especially like the coaches are relied on with discipline. So like if a kid's acting out in the classroom, they come to the coaches about like trying to motivate them through the elective that they're taking. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to advocate for a lot of students and uh, find opportunities to to help kids beyond just my classroom. And so that's really why I was literally just getting a cup of coffee one morning and I got bombarded by my assistant principal saying, Hey, I think you have an opportunity to be a school leader someday. Have you ever thought of be, about being an administrator? And I laughed at him. I was like, no, I'm, I'm just learning how to become a teacher and a coach. <laughs> I, I'm not even thinking about that. And, you know, that conversation was life-changing. Obviously I, I was an administrator for 10 years and um, it, that, that conversation changed everything, but I would have never had that conversation and that would never been brought to light without the opportunity to manage so many people beyond just my elective classes. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to go back to the student thing for a second. Uh, Mm -hmm. You as a student in uh, Aspire to Lead, you had this story about being in the counseling office and you, the counselor was saying like, Hey, what, like basically what do you want to do with your life? Right. And had your grades, all laid out there. And I think the the point was being like, hey, listen, like, I don't know what you want to do with your life, but I hope it ain't going to college because look at this, right? And you said you wanted to go to Bethel. Yeah. And basically he, I, I think it was a he, it was a he. Yep. Delivered some um pretty harsh news and basically said, You ain't going, you ain't going anywhere, buddy. Um, and then that became kind of like this inflection point for you and you kind of took it almost like a challenge it sounded like to like step up and raise your game because this guy had said this and maybe that goes back to that whole thing that you were saying earlier about that you don't like it when people tell you that you can't do something and it makes you bristle and is that kind of what was going on there oh for sure yeah that that competitive nature the the don't tell me what to do part of my life. I still have it today, Dave. Like you, you're even just you mentioning it. I'm like bristling right now because I'm reliving it in my mind. It wasn't, his message was correct. And it was exactly what I needed in that moment, even though at the time I didn't think I needed it, but it still drives me today. And there's a lot of things, my book for one, I had plenty of English teachers that told me I couldn't write, that I was terrible in English. And so, you know, trying, as you know, trying to construct a book, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. And I had to get past that in my own mind to say, no, I can write a book. I am a good writer. I do have a message that is important to get out. And it was really battling what I had heard for so many years as a student. And the counselor, it was his tact. You know, It was him slamming his hand on the table telling me, you're not going to a private college. You're not going to a state college. You're not even going to get into community college, right? And just the venom that came from him and and just the the look of disgust that uh, was across the table from me, it still motivates me today. So yeah, I, I think that was a pivotal point in my school because at that moment, I was determined because I had seen a college, which I had never been... Uh, seen before. I had never gone to a college campus. I, I know my parents were very adamant about me, you know, getting my grades up and going to college, but it's one thing to hear that from a parent, but it's another to go to a campus and experience that. And thankfully athletics got me to a couple colleges through camps. Um, I got recruited by a couple colleges. And so I started to make some visits and yeah, Bethel was the place I wanted to go. It was some, somewhere that it just fit. Uh, it was an incredible experience. So all that being said, I proved my counselor wrong. <laughs> I changed my yeah. schedule completely. I said, fine. I know that school's a game. I'll play the game. I'll get good grades. And, you know, by the grace of God and a couple of meetings uh, with the Bethel University, you know, I got in and I graduated within four years. So like all that being said is that was a huge motivator because it was someone that has told me that I couldn't do something. Yeah. And so, but this is like, I noticed this throughout kind of the whole story. Is that like <laughs> now you're you you kind of glossed over something here <laughs> that like you said you got into Bethel and then like graduated in four years like this wasn't a smooth ride either. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, it wasn't. Yeah, and, and so like the um, first of all you got rejected initially, right? 
couple times. And then you had to go in front of the panel and yeah. basically pitch yourself why you thought you should get in. And then uh, got um, messed up the first year and basically yeah. got kicked out and then had to go in front yeah. of a panel again in order to get back yeah. in. And then I was, I'm looking through this book, jo- Joshua, and I'm seeing like, okay, um, you wanted to get into the ad- administration pool. Got rejected. Try, went through a job interview process. Didn't get the job interview, right? Um, so there's, but this is like the thing that fascinates me. There's all these places in your story, these inflection points where a lot of people would quit. And some people, like it motivates them and challenges them. Like, like kind of what's that difference between someone who quits in the face of adversity and someone who um, perseveres? And actually, as I got further into your book, I thought that maybe you actually provided a couple of the clues. And uh, for those that haven't read Aspire to Lead, it's uh, the Aspire is an acronym, activate, support, persevere, identify, reflect, and execute. And in the persevere section, um, you had this line, and this was maybe the clue I was looking for. Tell me if you think this is what it's all about. said, um, you were talking about a conversation with your principal. You said, this one conversation with my principal changed my perspective completely and provided the most important aspect of perseverance, hope. Do you think that's one of the clues to overcoming these obstacles and challenges that you and others face? I think hope is probably the number one thing that has got me to persevere because you know, you go through the, the different stages of grief, right? When something bad happens and, you know, it's it's always the, the recovery and, and having hope, which gets you to push through, right? And so, yeah, I think there has been countless times, you know, you talked about getting kicked out of Bethel. You know, I was, that was probably one of the lowest moments of my life because I knew that's exactly where I needed to be to make me the man that I wanted to grow up to be, right? And so I remember the disappointment on my mom's face when I had to tell her that I got kicked out. And I remember going and sitting from that board and going in the second time, there was a very different <laughs> mood and vibe there that yeah, I didn't you so, get. You I, sold us the first time, buddy, but then you yeah. didn't live up to it. So what? why are we going to believe you now? Kind of a vibe probably. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the first time I was in front of like four people, the second time I was in front of like nine people and all of them were not smiling. And it was a very different uh, situation. And in, in fact, I thought it went terrible. The second time I walked out, uh, my mom asked how, you know, she took off of work. She came with me. Uh, I walked out. She asked, how how did it go? And I said, terrible. I'm not getting back in. And then she's like, did they say that? And I said, no, but I could just feel it. And thankfully, a week later, I got a call, uh, a letter back that said, you know, that I, I got back in and I was on probation. So um, all that being said, though, is every single situation that I've provided in, in that story, it's not to say like, Oh, look at me. This is a humble brag. I've done all these wonderful things. That's not what it's about. It's about, we're going to get, especially in education, you're going to get knocked down a thousand times. Right? So what is it that you need to get back up to be the best teacher, the best administrator, the best counselor, the best district director, right? So it doesn't matter what your position is. You are making an impact and education is probably one of the most difficult professions that we have in the United States. So when you get knocked down, what are you going to do about it? Right. So yeah. especially if you're trying to become a leader, <laughs> yeah. leadership's well, tough. And, and for sure, I don't see it as a humble brag because I mean, you have a high level of vulnerability in the book of like sharing multiple places, even in admin, even after all of this stuff that we're talking about in admin, you know, a, a botched parent phone call, yeah. uh, mishandled interaction with a peer, like a a colleague, like lots of different places. And then kind of your path through that. And maybe that's also goes when you, when I think about the Aspire acronym, the R being reflect, like your ability to reflect on that and to move past it. And um, one of the stories that hit me too um, was uh, you had not got a position. You'd gone through an interview process and you had not got a position. You were disappointed. And, um, your principal, maybe it was your principal, had said yeah. like, hey, I have, I asked why you didn't get, like, what did you do wrong in your interview? 
And this person sent me this big, long voice message with probably some very hard to hear uh, negative feedback about your interview and asked, said like, hey, this is going to be hard to hear. Do you want me to press play on this? And you said, yeah, I want you to press play. And I think that's also a key point there is a lot of people, they don't want to hear that negative feedback. They don't want to have that growth opportunity because it's uncomfortable, but you said press play. And so I think that's another part of the story too. A lot of people say like, it's okay to fail. And I think failure just in the English language is just an incorrect word to use. And so instead of failure, I I want to lean more into feedback because yeah, I, I want to put all of my mistakes or as much as I could in there because I wanted folks to to read it and understand like, maybe I shouldn't do it that way. <laughs> maybe I should do it in a little bit different way or maybe I have a different tact in this and whatnot. So um, I knew there was going to be a lot of like mistakes that possibly are made by young leaders. And if they could read my text and, and not do the same thing, it might be a, an easier journey for them. But we're all going to make just horrendous decisions sometimes, especially in our leadership journey. And so with that, I want to know, I want to know how I screwed up so I can be better. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be perceived as someone that's just, uh, put your head in the ground and move forward, uh, without understanding that, you know, there's, there's something that I did incorrectly or could have done better. And yeah, I, although it's uncomfortable in the moment, I can't get better if I don't know how I'm supposed to improve. And so with that conversation, yeah, I remember putting my head down, listening to the whole thing. And did I agree with everything? Absolutely not. There were some things that were perceived in that interview or perceived in their interactions with me that were dead wrong or incorrect, but that's still the perception that they had. So my goal was how do I change that? Like, what can I do from there? And thankfully I had a wonderful principal that had this very strategic mind that was like, Hey, you're doing a bunch of stuff on the campus but what are you doing at the district level? Like they, they may hear some things that are going on the campus and everybody knows you're making a huge impact here because we see it every day, but those folks are in a different building. <laughs> They're across the city. They don't know what you're doing. So what are you doing to either invite them onto the campus or what are you doing beyond the campus walls and, and making a, a deeper impact across the city? Yeah. So I think, yeah, that's, that, and that was a key point too, is that it wasn't necessarily, what you were or weren't doing is what other people knew that you were yeah. or weren't doing. And that's why, that's why it's so important to, um, you know, it's like the, the PR piece of all this is yeah. important too often and your ability to get the word out that like you, you had to be seen you, it wasn't important just to be a good leader. You had to have people that were in powerful positions that could move you up the ladder, see you as a good leader too. And so that, yeah, that was important. I guess it's similar to what I was talking about with playing the game with school. Sometimes you have to play the game, that PR game too, within your district. And as much as I want to push back, I hate the politics of stuff, especially in positions. I, I, I want the best people to be moved up. A lot of times it is about what is seen and what is heard versus, you know, what is actually being done. And so, yeah, that connection piece, uh, like you said, the PR making sure that I was getting my my name out there and, and being seen in other components. Uh, that was huge. That was literally, I think, one of the biggest reasons I got moved up the next year. Yeah. And you mentioned hating the politics of it all. It, that was that reminds me of another, you mentioned in the book, you'd always bristled to hear your dad say, um, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And like, this, like, no, like that shouldn't be what's important. Right. And, but there's kind of like an in-between ground, right. Where yes, it's important what you know, but you also got a network. You also have to be able to make those connections. And that's just, it might not be an ideal world, but it's the reality of the world that we live in. And so learning how to build connections and community and all that is an important piece of it. Um, And along the way, um, you mentioned the importance of uh, mentorship. And you've had some important mentors in your like educational journey. And uh, I think that's another thing that for aspiring leaders, like, who are you tapping into? Who's like, who are you getting mentorship from and making sure that you can find that and connect with that? Yeah, I think mentorship, I mean, we talked about hope as far as perseverance. I think as far as an aspiring leader going into the role that you want, mentorship is a must. It's it's not something that's a luxury. It's something that you have to make sure that you have set up. And I was very strategic about that. I, I love talking to folks that have veteran experience. Um, I have 
to this day, I still have multiple mentors and various points in my life. So it's not just an education, but other components. So it's, it's me seeking that out. I remember the first time I, I met with my original principal who hired me telling her, will you please be my mentor and letting her know like, Hey, you, you intimidate me due to your role, the way that we've had our conversations before being extremely honest in that and her being surprised by that feedback, but also she embraced it. She was so much more lovely to be around after that conversation. And um, was this, she, was this Sonia? This wasn't Sandra. This was uh, um, Ann Aston. Okay. Yeah, Sandra okay. is yeah. Um, my mentor still to this day. She's amazing. She's like family. But uh, Ann Aston was my principal who hired me. And um, my first year in the admin uh, program uh, at the university, I, I needed a mentor. That was one of the things that they they had asked us to do. And um, I already had it in my mind that I wanted her because she was you know, been in education for like 30 years. She she was amazing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I had that conversation with her and um, she was super joyous about the opportunity to, to work with me. And, and again, I, I don't mean that to, as a brag, but it was just like, she wanted to feed into other people. And so um, yeah, Sanja, on the other hand, <laughs> she was the assistant principal at the time. Um, when she came on, I kind of pivoted from Anne to Sanja because you know, she just had more availability as an assistant principal than the principal. And she literally had the open door policy. And um, I unfortunately got the nickname office rat because I kept going to the front office every day, uh, trying to get more information. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a nickname that I didn't love, but it was also endearing. They, they meant it as a compliment and it was, you know, I had a lot of competition on my campus. There were like five other people that were going through the same type of program in other universities. They all want to be administrators. And so I knew if I wanted to get ahead of everybody else on my campus, as far as getting a, a position as an assistant principal, I needed to do everything possible. So I was in there before school, off period, after school, like lunchtime, anytime I could. Um, I was in the front office asking like, what they were doing, if I could shadow them, if there was anything I could do to take the, you know, off their plate. Um, you know, when I talked about, you said the Aspire acronym activate that, that was, that was how I activated. I, I got out of my classroom and tried to experience absolutely everything from that position. Yeah. So this really resonated with me when you said, when you use the term office rat, um, and said that this was not, it sounds derogatory, but it's a positive thing because, uh, going back to my role as a basketball coach, yeah. like the the gym rat is a common phrase that people use. And like, I love gym rats. I love to coach a gym rat. And then yep. the gym rat was the person that uh, they're going to find an open gym somewhere. They're like, like what's, op- what's open on Saturday? What's open on Monday? I, I was a gym rat. Like I knew I could tell you what gyms were open, what nights, where the pickup games were, all those kind of things like that. And I would get together with my buddies and we'd be like, okay, Saturday morning, we're going over here. Monday night, we're going here. We're going to play. There's good, there's good runs over here. And um, you would have some of these players that would play for you. And they would be practically be begging you to open the gym, like open the gym before school. I want to come in and yep. shoot. Like open, like can can we play? Like will you open the gym on Sunday? We want to come in and practice. Like it's like those are the kids I want. I want the gym rats. And uh, so the fact that you were labeled as an office rat, just like that immediate, like like oh my god, yes, yeah, like a gym rat. I want <laughs> I want the I want those players on my team, which is what happened for you by being an office rat too. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, they were. They didn't know what to do with me, Dave. Honestly, they they had never experienced anyone, and they, they kept saying, "Man, you're so hungry! Like, like go back to your classroom." And you know, and there was a balance too. I, I wrote on this, like I actually had a really. And you're talking about that feedback piece, right? My principal brought me in and was like, "What's your position?" And I was like, "Our teacher and coach." And he's like, "How are you bettering yourself in that position?" You know, and what he was getting at was like. I was, I was overextending myself. I was trying to be everything to everyone. And, and I was slacking on the role I currently had. And it was kind of a kick in the butt to say like, it's great that you're hungry. It's great that you're getting all this experience. But in the, at the end of the day, (laughs) your title still remains the same. You still have the responsibility of those kids in that art classroom. You still have the responsibility of those kids, you know, uh, in the, in the athletics department. And so uh, for me, it was like, okay, I think my aspirations are kind of taking the best of me in this situation where I'm, I'm doing too much outside of the classroom. And now I need to kind of get back to what I was great at before and, and making sure that I had 
uh, none of my responsibilities slacking on that end. And so, yeah, I think it's great if you are able to do that, but at the same time, you, you still have that balance because you still have those responsibilities. Yeah, I, I wish I knew who could give credit. I'm not sure if I heard it was, if it was George Kuros or Adam Welcome. I can't remember which one. I think it was maybe one of those mentioned the idea that like as an aspiring administrator, one of the most important things that you can do is to be amazing at what your current role is. Yeah. Like if you want the next role, uh, a key component of that is like be seen as being amazing at what you're doing now. Um, as a and that's kind of maybe what that feedback was coming to you for like hey don't forget you need to be amazing in your art room too yep yeah it was a good reminder and and i i truly thank him for that i i know it wasn't an easy conversation because he knew i was so driven but aspirations are great until they they overwhelm you and take over you know what your current your current role is so yeah it was a good lesson to learn yeah i i noticed you mentioned um the strategic nature of some of this. And one of the things you talked about in the book was you had asked yourself, like as a new administrator, you're like, what are the leadership qualities that I want to be known for? I thought it was a powerful question. What are the leadership qualities that I want to be known for? Um, and then you set up uh, this thing, I think you call it the identity framework, where it had like, here's a, a leadership identity, goals, and the evidence you were looking to um, for evidence that you were meeting these goals and like achieving this, being seen at this identity, and so uh, that was a part of the book I enjoyed. Is the this identity framework? Is that something that's been powerful for you? And I wonder if you use that with other. Like I know you do leadership coaching. I wonder if that's been helpful for others as well. Yeah, I think so because a lot of folks <laughs> fall in the same trap as what I did, which was you get on new campus and you have an idea of what type of leader you're going to be, but then you also start to adopt the ideas of the campus and what the teachers expect you to be. And so unfortunately I thought I was going to come in and save the campus that I was promoted to. And I literally took on everything that they tried to put on my back. And what happened was <laughs> I got burnt out and almost quit administration as a whole um, because, and not to say it was their fault. It was, because there was a lot of needs on that campus and they didn't know where to turn. And so instead of me looking at this identity and saying, this is important to me and kind of using that as my center, I kind of deviated from those thoughts, pushed it aside and said, well, this is the leader I need to be based on what is being communicated um, based like on the staff. And so, yeah, I, I put that together because I wanted to have a, some type of reflection for young leaders so that they could put it up on their bulletin board, <laughs> that they could have it visible. Because what happens is just administration in general is there are so many tasks, and there's so many fires put out, and there's so much that's pulling you from different places that you sometimes forget about why you became administrator in the first place. What yeah. was the passion that you had? What were the projects that you wanted to dive into? What was the way that you wanted to make a difference? And so this framework was is meant to be a reminder so that you can come back and say, oh yeah, I'm getting pulled in a different direction. Hopefully that in that reflection, you know, folks can at least have something to, to center them. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Joshua, I want to switch gears for a second. And one of the key concepts that I like to talk about is the idea that we need to be drawing ideas from outside of education into education and how powerful that could be to learn from other fields, right? And not just to be confined by ideas in education, but to like, you know, read wide, live wide is how I put it often in my podcast. And you have become quite um, powerful and skilled and do some training and have learned a lot about trauma-informed practices. But it was interesting to find out that it wasn't through education that you were first exposed to trauma-informed practices. And that kind of opens up a whole other area of your life that we can chat about. And so I was wondering, what was it that, what was going on in your life that first exposed you to these powerful ideas of trauma-informed practices? Yeah, I was not expecting to save. It was actually a, a perfect time <laughs> to learn because I was so frustrated with the the position I was in, you know, I talked about burnout before. One of the reasons I was so burnout in the role um, of assistant principal at that time was because of the amount of discipline that was occurring on the campus. And unfortunately, I was really only 
able to use three things, which was detention, in-school suspension, and out-of-school suspension. And research shows that those three things don't really help students at all, and in fact, don't really help behavior. And so what I was finding was that I was having more student behavior than a decrease. And so I was extremely frustrated. My teachers were frustrated with me. I was constantly thinking like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so at that time, my wife and I decided to become foster parents um, in Texas. And so with that, there's a lot of training that's required of you. And so I will be extremely honest. I was I, I was kind of kicking and screaming to go into those trainings because I was like, look, I'm a parent of two. I feel like my kids are just fine. Like, why am I the one required to take parenting classes? Um, but in that, we went through uh, a training that was through Dr. Purvis of TCU. And she was really talking about trauma-informed care. Um, it's called TBRI. It's a phenomenal program. God rest her soul. She passed away um, due to cancer, but they still do her research. And now they even have an education component to that. So um, what I was doing at the time, they didn't have that education component. I was looking at the behaviors they were talking about with the kids in foster care and all the behaviors that they were talking about were things I was seeing on my campus. But they were talking about a whole different system of how to address the behavior, um, work with the students in a way that allows the kids to be a part of that process, that resolution process. And I was just thinking, like, why can't we do the same thing on a school, like in a school building? Why are we just sending kids away? Like, why are we just sending them into a room and spending all day in there and expecting this magical thing to occur where like they are enlightened and they get all these skills and they're supposed to go back and just like repair this relationship with their teacher? And like, of course, none of that happened. And so, you know, learning through, uh, you know, Professor Purvis and this, this trauma informed system, I was like, man can we do this in a better way? Is there, is there some way that I can start to create a new system, something that's going to be a little bit better for our kids and helps build a relationship with them versus it's me versus you and them feeling like they're, they're not welcome in the classroom, not welcome at school, you know, and, and you always say this too, like, you know, we want kids running into the building versus out. Right. right. And I felt like I was excluding kids and making them feel unwelcome and breaking that relationship versus saying, no, I love you. I want to make you better. I want you to learn through this experience. Like, how can we resolve this? And so, you know, when we talk about that framework in the book, that was my charge. Like I became an administrator because I wanted to make a difference in kids' lives. I wanted to make them the best versions of themselves. And I wanted them to, to learn how to be a good communicator and how to work through adversity and all these things that I wished I had in school, I wanted to instill in kids. And so, Sometimes, you know, we get so caught up in the the standards and the the things that they need to learn and regurgitate, but there's other components, you know, you talk about future ready skills, like that's what I wanted to lean into. I wanted these kids to have skills that I knew were going to make them productive adults, not just, you know, mastering some silly standard that they may not never use in their life. And I know some people may cringe in that in education, but that was my charge. And that's, that's still to this day. I want to, I want to pour into people um, in different ways. And so yeah, that was like a turning point for me in my career and um, really went into, leaned hard into that of finding people that had similar beliefs on the campus and, and building a relationship action team. Yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting how the pendulum swings in education because now I know you do work with um, restorative practices and yep. restorative circles and all that as well. And it's like this, um, you feel like maybe you're turning a corner somewhere and then all of a sudden the pendulum swings back the other way and all of a sudden all the pushback comes. And like right now we're like the pendulum swung back and now they're in this place of pushback against some of these, yep. like even mentioning some of these words like trauma informed or social emotional learning or uh, restorative practices uh, will get people's uh, the hair on their back up. Right. And there's, yep. I mean, there's even I can think of a very high profile um, TikTok account that basically has a, at least a video a day, that's that uh comes after these these ideas and concepts and yet um you know the the root of these ideas can be so powerful um when they're properly implemented in schools and so i love the fact that you are out there uh, pitching and training in these ideas and helping schools and teachers learn how to use them effectively because they can be effective. 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing is our, our kids are going through a lot and there's there's plenty of data and I try to use data because it's unemotional, but there's so much data out there that say that there there's so many kids that are hungry. There are so many kids that have, you know, trauma in their life with experiencing, you know, abuse or neglect. And so to, to assume that a kid is going to come in and be a little angel and regurgitate all this information every single day for eight hours uh, with no hiccups is it's, it's mind boggling. And so like, what are we doing to help support the emotional needs of our kids? And so, yeah, that's my biggest charge is just, just allowing teachers to understand like every kid that's sitting in your class, majority of them have gone through something that's horrific and everyone deals with it differently and behavior is a language. So how are you kind of, you know, finding out what they're trying to tell you so that you can give them the resources and the help that they need to be the most successful that they possibly can be? Yeah. Well, thank you for the work in that space. It was super necessary. Um, towards the end of the book, you chatted about ways of bringing, as a even through leadership, bringing creativity into a school. And one of the ones that you mentioned was you had implemented something called the Creative Corner PD. Yeah. I was wondering if you could explain what the Creative Corner is. Yeah. So a lot of times folks are apprehensive i'll say that uh, when an administrator comes in and like tries to pitch something or an initiative or whatnot because it's a top-down situation and so uh, several things that i talk about in the book are are not top-down at all it's more of a kind of a grassroots movement and so the creative corner was was that idea it was like hey i get to go into classrooms all the time and see these amazing things that are occurring from our teachers so how can they have a platform to share that out. And so, you know, similar to what you were talking about, as far as like having your PLN and stuff like that, you know, why can't we just do that on a campus level? Right. So we would have these, it was not, it was not something that was mandatory. It was voluntary as far as attendance, but we did give them hours uh, for their PD because everyone has to have that for their license. And we would just ask folks like, what are you great at? Like, what do you want to share with the staff? And so they would pick something, you know, if it was like, uh, for our English learners or, you know, some type of Google Chrome extension that they utilize and it was saving them time and it was helping their kids. You're like, well, why wouldn't you want to share that out? And so we would have these, you know, 30 minute to 40 minute sessions. And we tried to differentiate too, based on the, our campus. So sometimes we'd have multiple facilitators so that we had like a low level. We've never been experienced, have any experience in this, or, you know, I have a lot of experience, but I want to go even further. Right. So we're trying to model what we can do in a classroom too, as far as differentiation. And yeah, it was phenomenal. I, I learned a ton. I know our staff did and our attendance only went up as the year went on because it wasn't someone from the district. It wasn't someone as far as administration. It was their peers that said, Hey, I have this practice. It's helping me either save time or it's, it's making the the product of like my student learning better. And I want to share it with you. And so, yeah, we, we, found a lot of value in it. And I feel like it helps our campus immensely as far as kind of putting the the wall down and yeah. being accepting of, of new ideas. Right. It kind of has a little bit of an ed cap vibe to me. Um, totally. Where it's like teacher generated sessions. Like, you know, the participants themselves are coming up with, this is what I want to know about. This is what I want to learn about. Who's great at this. Let's chat about it. <clears throat> and I think that yep. the, um, not only so is the learning an important part of that, but um, also we work in this really strange profession where we don't get to see what each other do typically. Yeah. So like, you know, I taught with people in some cases for 17 years. I taught on the same campus as teachers, passed them every morning in the office, in the mail, like getting our stuff out of our little mailbox, passed them in the copy room, maybe in the lounge at lunch, never one time saw them do what they're to teach their class. They never one time saw me teach. And so something like this provides that opportunity for staff to kind of learn about the, all of the excellence and incredible stuff that's around them that's going unnoticed. Yeah. So in student, when I student taught, I, I worked at a phenomenal middle school, Coon Rapids Middle School. And they, at the time, the principal had this thing where on your off period, they, they would require that you would go into a classroom and you would actually witness a lesson and then give feedback to that teacher. And it was this beautiful culture, they had done it for years. And I just assumed that being young and stupid, like this is what all campuses do. Well, that was far from the truth as I started as a teacher and that wasn't implemented. And 
when I became an administrator, I was like, well, I thought that was a, a fantastic practice. We learned so much as a teacher and we got to experience other people's uh, teachings and their, and their systems and their skills. And so like, I tried to implement that on a campus and it failed. <laughs> it yeah. failed miserably. And people were real like apprehensive about it. And I don't want to be judged. And they had a lot of negative connotations to that. So this was my, my way around that to say, yeah. okay, you don't have to get in someone's classroom. Let's have a neutral site, but you're still gaining information from what their teaching practices are. It's just right. without students. And it was a comfortable place. There was no judgment. They could fail and no one would know <laughs> that they were struggling. And it, it literally was a, a learning environment. So, um, but it also modeled really strong practices um, for them to take into their own classroom. So I, I kind of did a little workaround to get to the same result. Um, yeah. But I had to be like honest about like, okay, there's a different way to do it. And that's the creative creativity piece, right? So, you know, when something, when you're running into obstacles, are you going to going to quit <laughs> or yeah. are you going to try a new solution or a new procedure to, to hopefully get to the same result? Yeah. And as you mentioned, the getting into the classrooms as a, another way of doing this shout out to Vicki Wilson, some of the stuff that she does with instructional rounds Yes, and um, super powerful stuff. So lead with rounds, check it out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, the other thing you mentioned in that section that I loved is the, this idea that, Teachers are so used to going to administration with ideas and hearing, no, no, mm -hmm. no, we can't do that. Don't have the money in the budget for that. No, we can't get approval for this. And one of the things that you said that an administrator can start to do it, say yes to crazy ideas. Let teachers hear yes when they come with these ideas. Maybe you share a couple of thoughts on that. Yeah, I I got frustrated a lot of times with as a teacher because I would ask to do crazy things all the time. And I'd always get if it wasn't a no, it was another way to say no, <laughs> as far as like the obstacles and things as to what to do. So honestly, Dave, I just stopped asking for permission and started asking for forgiveness. And I don't think that's a very good way of doing things as far as a culture. And so, you know, I think a lot of great ideas get squashed because we start to look at logistics and we don't see the bigger picture and we don't understand like what the end result may be. And, you know, as, as an art teacher in that creative process, you know, if I'm painting a picture, what I have in my mind when I start to where I end with the end product is different. And it's supposed to be different because as you go through the process, you get different ideas, you see things that are working that you weren't anticipating, and it morphs and it changes into something that's beautiful at the end. And there's so many initiatives that have that same process. And so to get in the way as an administrator and say no right away without truly understanding what it can be. I think is is such a deflating thing. And it, what happens is when teachers hear no so many times, they just give up. They're like, yeah. what's the point? Why why even take the time to to write this down in an email or go and see, you know, the administrators and have a meeting about it when I know already know the answer to that. And so for myself, I was charged to like, okay, I remember what this was like as a teacher. So I don't want to make the same mistake as an administrator. So I'm not going to say no. I may ask some some qualifying questions to try and figure out like where might this end, end up? But yeah, I said a lot of yeses without truly knowing because I knew it was going to be better for kids. I knew it was going to be, it was going to empower this teacher and the life that is brought to a teacher that hears yes <laughs> is amazing. Yeah. And you, you're, I can think of so many examples of like teachers at the end, having something that's created well beyond what I ever imagined. And if I would have said no at that first point, it would have been a detriment to our campus and our culture. Yeah. That automatic no is such a killer of initiative and innovation and all those yes. things. And that's, I, I've said this in front of groups of admin before. So like, listen, it's really popular to say that you support innovation. It's really like popular right now to say like, Oh, we want risk takers. We want educational risk takers. We want innovators, but we don't really know if you support innovation and risk-taking in your system until we find out what happens when somebody fails, <laughs> right? Yep. And so like, it's it's great to say that you like risk-taking and innovation when you're talking about your superstars that maybe are you know doing incredibly. But what about when someone tries something and it doesn't work out so well? 
How do you react then? Do you come in a judgmental way? Do you come in or do you come in a way that celebrates the courage it took to take that risk and in a supportive way of like, hey, maybe there's another way we can do this and offering resources. So if you are going to celebrate that those that risk taking, even when it doesn't go well, because you know it took courage to do it, you'll see more innovation in your school system. But if you come in in a judgmental way, um, you're going to see less. And so uh, we have to like not just say we're about the buzzword, but be about the buzzword too. Oh, so so true. There's so many buzzwords right now, and and then when you look at the the traditional system that we work in, it's it's just a failure in in general. It, it it will never kick off because even though we have the best intentions, unfortunately, we sometimes default to what we have known for so long. So I, I wanted to I wanted to be a creative leader, but I also wanted to instill that in my staff. I wanted them to think outside the box because I knew what we were doing today may not be best practice one year, two years, three years from now. We Because like we are, the pandemic is a perfect example of that. <laughs> Think about how we had to pivot so so much and the education system is not the same as it was four years ago. So to say that the, the same things that we were doing is what we're going to do forever is ignorant. So I, I knew I had to empower my staff to, to think about new ideas and not get in the way of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so one of the cool things I noticed about your book Joshua that I loved is that the kind of the the common the impact of the podcast and the book together. So you have multiple contributing authors throughout the book who put in powerful pieces, but then it's not just the powerful piece that they wrote in the book, but then at the end of that section it links to a more full form interview with that contributing author. And so there's like this real cohesion in between the book and the podcast. And I love how that came out. And um, as someone who has, you know, as I said, as we, as we record 263 episodes, um, the podcasting thing has just really taken off for you. That's been fun to see. What, what, what is podcasting meant to you? I, is Has this been your way of scratching that creative itch again? Yeah, it was it was a lifesaver, Dave. Honestly, it was, uh, you know, DBC author Todd Nisloni. I had the opportunity to meet him at a conference and uh, visit his campus in, in Nova Soda, Texas. And him and Adam Welcome were doing the Kids Deserve It podcast at the time. And so I got to see the behind the scenes of that. And that was the spark I needed at the time. It, it literally saved me in, in my administrative career because, and I write about this too, it was the creative process and that outlet that's needed um, in so many people because leadership is a beatdown. And so like I needed that, that creative outlet and I didn't have it anywhere in my life. And so, you know, I was, I was working with aspiring leaders. I loved that work and I just wanted to like push into that harder. And I, it took me six months to push record and like get it out to the world because I had to, again, like get over the mental aspect of that. But yeah, it was amazing. I, I, the podcast has taken me to places that I never thought um, was humanly possible. Right. I wouldn't have written a book without having the inspiration and the conversations from the podcast. I I wouldn't have had the connections made to even get the the people that wrote in the book. Like I, I wouldn't have been able to get the job that I have now with Teach Better um, or speak at conferences. And like none of this was anticipated, but it was just this beautiful um, extension of the podcast that you know I found my voice. I, I learned so much. It's like the, probably the best professional development I've ever had in my life. You know and um, sometimes I have to pinch myself, like when I talk to an Olympic gold athlete or, you know, like some of the people that I've had an opportunity to have conversations with, like, I, I just never should have had that opportunity. And so, uh, yeah, the podcast was phenomenal. Um, I've done it for five years now. And, um, like you said, I, I've had the, you know, wonderful opportunity to, to just speak with so many phenomenal educational leaders. Yeah. That's something I've heard Tim Ferriss say before is that the best part about having a podcast is, you have this ready-made excuse to just talk to a bunch of people that you want to talk to like that yeah. would never, you wouldn't be able to call them up normally and just say like, hey, let's, let's talk for an hour. But like, you can say, let's do a podcast episode and it's the same thing really. Yeah. And no, and honestly, educators are like, they have such a huge heart. They, they want to help. And so like 99% of the people that I've ever asked to be on the podcast have said, yes, you know, it's, it's typically just a logistical issue of like, trying to figure out a, t- a good time and, and uh date, but 
yeah, people, they, they want to help as much as possible. They, they want to, you know, share out like we're doing today to educators and, and hope that their words inspire them in some ways. So yeah, I, um, I didn't know the power of a podcast <laughs> when I created it. I was help. I was hoping honestly to just have a couple, you know, maybe aspiring educators in Texas, um, you know, maybe find out about the podcast and learn from that. I, I didn't understand like the global reach that it would have, um, you know, as I'm looking at data and stuff, I think I've gotten over 83 countries that listen to the podcast now. It's, it's just mind boggling. I, I didn't expect what was happening <laughs> when I created it. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's um, I love the show. And so keep putting out these inspirational conversations with great people. Thank you for that. Um, Appreciate that. At the end of the book, you have uh you kind of feature this quote which i think is really a great quote for a lot of what we talked about today this these fact that you have not had a smooth journey all the way through you've hit these obstacles you hit these challenges you've kept moving um you haven't been willing to be defeated you've grown through these things to get better and use this quote from nelson mandela i never lose i either win or i learn and I think that's just so evident through your journey, super inspirational. And I'm uh, thankful that you were willing to share all those rough spots along the way too. Yeah, it's the mindset of a lion, right? So yeah. it was a, a picture I found on Twitter one day and it had a, a image of a lion coming out of large grass and, and it had this Nelson Mandela quote and it hit me like a ton of rocks and it, it was something that I have always written in my office. It's something I say to my kids. It's I say it to my students. I say it to everyone I possibly can because I think we are our own worst enemy. We we beat ourselves down. Like, you know, when you have a survey come out and you get any negative feedback, you might have a hundred positive things that are said about you and maybe one negative. And of course, all we want to focus on is that one negative yep. thing. We'll obsess on that and one. A one, yeah, I obsess on it. And um I we are we are all going to fail. No one's perfect, right? So we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to have results that we didn't want. And what is that mindset, right? That hope piece. And for me, it was like just reminding myself of this quote of, you know, yeah, I may not have got the result that I wanted, but did I learn through the process, you know, and that reflection? Did I learn from the mistakes that I made? And honestly, if if I'm being authentic, if I'm being true to myself and I'm really getting in there and saying, did I learn from something? Then I can be better the next time I try. Right. And, and that's the idea throughout the whole book is for me, <laughs> this has happened when I played soccer. If I was on a tryout, I do terribly in the tryout. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I play in the games and I'd learn and I'd get better. And then I get promoted into the next team. Right. Um, for my teaching career, I, I did not pass the first time I took the teaching assessment because I had to learn the system. Um, it was 12 essays and it was timed, right? I had to learn the system to be better the next time. Uh, when I tried to get the admin job, I didn't get it, right? Like I tried to go all through the these different adversities to show that uh, we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail, right? But what's the feedback? What's What am I learning through that experience so that the next time I do it, I can do it better and I can be get the result that I want? And that's what happens so many times as an administrator. I've I've had so many folks come into my office and say, "I want to, I want to do X, Y, and Z. I want to be an administrator," and then I never see them again, <laughs> right? So it's like, well, you got to put yourself out there. You gotta you gotta try things. You gotta mess up. You gotta learn through those experiences. And then when you when you do mess up or when you when you don't get the result, it's about what did I learn? I'm not a failure. It's either I win or I learn, and I and I try to use that. And I even, I don't know if you saw it, Dave, but there's an outline of a line in the rocks and that was intentional. Um, it's kind of a, a hidden message, but it was, it was for that mindset of a lion of, of making sure that you understand that you are, you are going to win a lot of things if you just try trying again. Yeah. I love that. And what a great place to wrap up. Um, Joshua, if people want to connect with you, if people want to learn about how they can bring you into your to the system to speak or the conference to speak, where are the best places to connect with Joshua Stamper? Yeah. So joshstamper.com. Um, you can get the podcast, blogs, all kinds of ways to connect with me there. Of course, on social media with Twitter and Instagram as Joshua double underscore Stamper. 
Perfect. All right, everyone, go pick up the book, Aspire to Lead. Check out, go subscribe to the podcast. Also, Aspire to Lead. Uh, good branding there, Joshua. I like it. There we go. And uh, it's been an honor to have you on the, show, on the show. Thank you so much for being willing to join me. Oh, my goodness, Dave. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Dave Burgess Show. Let's connect. I am at Burgess Dave on Twitter. My name just flipped around to Burgess Dave. On Instagram, I am DBC underscore INC, and I blog at DaveBurgess.com. Please share your thoughts and comments on social media using the hashtag DaveBurgessShow. It would mean the world to me if you share the show with friends and colleagues, and I would be honored if you left a positive review on whatever platform you listen on. Hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you have a question, a topic, or a guest recommendation for the show, just email me at dave at daveburgess.com, put podcast question in the subject line, and I absolutely cannot wait to join you on the next episode.